Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the senior editor of the journal Global Symmetry, which you can find at the Global Symmetry Project website. It's my pleasure to welcome back into the virtual studio Tom Wright from the Brookings Institution. This is going to be episode 21, which is a focus with Tom on uh, the United Kingdom and Ireland's responses uh, to COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Tom has been with us a number of times. He has been very actively writing on contemporary politics and the impact of Trump on American foreign policy. He continues his writing in the Atlantic magazine on what a Democratic Party foreign policy might be uh, for the upcoming presidential 220 contest, of course. And um, Tom, uh, as many of you may well know, is the director of the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution and a senior fellow there on the project on international order and strategy. It's, as always, a great pleasure to welcome uh, him into the virtual studio. So let's go and talk with Tom Wright. Well, it's a great pleasure uh, to welcome you back, Tom, uh, to the virtual studio um, and hope you are well and healthy and all the rest of it. Alan, it's uh, great to be with you. And yet, yeah, thankfully, we're, we're all good here in, uh, in Washington. I hope you're uh, doing well, uh, too. Absolutely. Okay, Tom, so it's evident we have a rather dramatic global event, uh, the pandemic. Uh, broadly, let's just get the big picture from you. Uh, do you think that the leading states and the significant international organizations, including, but importantly, the WHO, have really, have they stepped up to meet this uh, global pandemic? I, I think the pandemic I mean, we still need to know exactly how consequential it is, and it could well be the, one of the most consequential, if not the most consequential events since World War II. But uh, I think it has, to me, sort of hurt all of the major actors. Right? I don't think anyone has sort of come out of this particularly well. I don't think it's been an opportunity for anyone. Or well, over time, it may hurt some more than others, and so that would be a relative you know, difference and that may um, prove significant. Um, but I think to start with, I think China has been badly damaged by this. I mean, the fact that uh, they made key mistakes uh, early on and, uh, you know, in the managing uh, of the response um, and denied it and, you know, put pressure on the WHO in key ways and, and are still doing things today, including trying to blame it on the US. I think it's pretty devastating, actually. And while they're trying to um, make amends for it with development assistance, there's problems there, too, in terms of the conditions attached or the slightly imperial air around it. And so I think it's been very damaging for them. Uh, and I think it's going to be very difficult for the CCP to shake it, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, I think for the U.S., you know, it's the first crisis where there's been no U.S. leadership really since the 1930s. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think, you know, the U.S. has been more badly hit than uh, most other sort of advanced industrialized, you know, countries and democracies. 
there's a huge difference, obviously, between Germany or South Korea on the one hand and the U.S. experience. And, of course, it's really the sum of all fears in terms of Trump's uh, presidency. Um, and, uh, you know, there's really no prospect of U.S. leadership as long as he's in office. And so I think it is very badly damaging for America, too. There's obviously a reset button that can be hit in November mm-hmm. that, if it's hit, I think will will, will be pretty significant. But, um, but I think it is a problem. And then the international institutions, you know, I, I understand why the WHO, you know, some of the constraints they were operating under, um, you know, it's always tough when you're dealing with a crisis with, major powers, but I think there's no doubt that they mishandled it in some very significant ways and uh, and compounded it. Now, I think they've also done, you know, they've also performed well in some other areas, um, but clearly they've become politicized and it's, I think it's damaged their reputation and effectiveness too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now Trump is using it, obviously, as a political football for his own purposes, but there are questions around uh, their actions also. So I think, and you know, and plenty of others we can go through as well. So yeah. I think it is to me sort of so far it's been pretty bad for most of the major, um, most of the major actors. Huh. So, so let me uh, just take you to uh, uh, an item that appeared in the uh, South uh, China Morning Post, which was actually, I think it was a Friday piece. And uh, in that piece, it suggested that there was going to be a second um, a meeting of uh, global G20, I mean, the G20 leaders, uh, not surprisingly, <laughs> virtually. Um, as you know, in the original meeting, ultimately called by Saudi Arabia, in their statement, they said, you know, they would do whatever it takes. In this piece, it suggested that there was this second meeting that was to be scheduled for, I think it was for Friday, and it was called off because of bickering between the United States and China. Have you heard anything about this? I have not, but it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me, obviously. Um, but I had not heard that. <laughs> I, I think you know it's interesting to look at the the I mean the G twenty mm-hmm. G seven um, structures. I mean this is one would think a tailor made moment for both the G twenty and the G seven. Right, and you would expect to see. Uh, you know, coordination on best practice around travel restrictions, um, an attempt to, to, if not pool resources, to think systematically about PPE and critical medical supplies and to try to come up with some rules of the road, Mm -hmm. what would be fair, uh, to begin to structure uh, cooperation on developing vaccine and treatments and providing assurances for how those will be used after they are developed mm-hmm. um, to begin to ensure that uh, the rebuilding of national economies will be done in a way that doesn't end up being very protectionist and hurting everyone. And then to have a real lessons learned approach in real time from the response, including from international institutions. Um, none of that obviously has happened uh, at the G20 ministerial couple of weeks before everything shut down. I think that was at the end of February. You might correct me on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I, I understand it never really came up. Like it was referred to sort of in passing. The mm-hmm. U.S. didn't want to make a big deal out of it. Mm-hmm. Chinese delegation was pretty junior. Um, the G7 call was organized at the instigation of Macron um, and Trump. That's right. Yeah. Um, so they've really, you know, these things haven't really operated. And then in the middle of all of that, um, after praising China and Xi Jinping for many weeks, Trump and his people decide that what they want to do now is invest most of their time in trying to rename the virus yeah. and, you know, uh, and trying to blame China publicly for political purposes. Mm-hmm. Like, China deserves blame, but I think they were shifting, right, because they wanted to just, because they had praised China early on. Um, and and then that basically complicates, obviously seriously complicates cooperation. Now, you know me, I mean, I, I've always been, and we've discussed and argued before about sort of a more competitive approach to China, so I'm definitely in favor of that. But I think, you know, most of us who favor competition with China also believe, as many of us signed in that letter, uh, many sort of more hawkish voices on that letter as well, interestingly enough, said that you still need cooperation with China in some, you know, in, in important areas. And you have to have a diplomatic dialogue. Mm-hmm. The, the administration has not really had that. Well, um, how, could, how could it, Tom? I mean, in the face, and we've seen it, uh, you know, in organizing uh, nationally to secure PPE in the United States, basically the federal government f- refused to, uh, to really co- coordinate at all, right? And, and yeah, I would say I would say on that. I mean, I agree with that, and I agree that that was badly handled, uh, and I've criticized them for that too. But mm-hmm. what's interesting to me is when you look at this globally, basically everyone adopted that national approach to PPE. You know, right. the, one of the first acts by the Germans was to basically nationalize those industries in yes. Germany. Yes, you know, now they've subsequently exported some stuff and all of that, but they immediately want to control. Um, China did that obviously very early on in the year, began to stop exports and try to ramp up imports because they needed the equipment. Um, you know, the U.S. has used the Defense Production Act in this regard. I think one of the areas where maybe there's been a, some of the criticism of Trump has been a little bit out of context has been on some of that, you know, where um, – Basically, what the U.S. is doing is essentially what everyone is doing, which is trying to get their hands on on as much PPE, you know, and other medical supplies as possible uh, using any means, legal means they have at their disposal. Well, well, fair enough. But I mean, this this was an internal competition, right? If you listen to. You're right. So that was I mean, that was crazy where. Yeah. For competing with each other. No, absolutely. And what he should have done, of course was to federalize this very early right. and to, you know, right. have used the Defense Production Act and other mm-hmm. he had at his disposal, which, I mean, the irony of all of this is he sees himself as a very strong imperial-style president, um, right. but right. he's actually um, tried to not use the powers available to him, you know, responding to this, and has delegated them basically to governors and local officials. 
Exactly. And in the, at least in this area, they were competing with each other. And all it did was drive up pricing and, and satisfied nobody at the end of the day. But um, we can come back at another opportunity to talk about the, the Trump strategy, uh, particularly, you know, obviously, we've got November coming up. But um, and the and the general election, which in one way or another will begin sometime this summer. But let me let me uh, move you now over to uh, the UK uh, and uh, let's explore that uh, a bit. I mean, our good friend Boris Johnson, who looked like it was nip and tuck for a while for him um, uh, in terms of personal health. Nevertheless, uh, in early March, uh, basically was saying this is with respect to the uh, to the um, pandemic there in the UK. We should all uh, basically just go about our normal daily lives. He advised, "The best thing you can do is wash your hands with soap and hot water while singing Happy Birthday twice." And then on March sixteenth. Uh, the the government finally decided to reconsider its previous, in quotes, light touch approach, which uh, apparently envisaged something like 60% of the population, about 40 million people, if we're talking about the UK, uh, uh, getting infected. Uh, enough, a number of the um, of officials described it as herd immunity, although obviously later. Uh, these officials said, no, no, that's a scientific term. This is not the public policy. But what was going on uh, with this government? Um, yeah, I think they, you know, there's no question now, I think, that they did handle it very badly early on. And um, they sort of toyed with this sort of approach of herd immunity right. and letting it wash over them. They failed to prepare on the testing side Um and the numbers sort of speak for themselves. I can't quite recall exactly what the current number in the UK is, but... Well, it's about, um, uh, for the UK, just so we can bring you up to that, it's about 26,000 deaths now. Yeah, I thought it was even a little higher, but mm. but yeah, but that's a lot. And, that's a lot. Know, it's not, yes. um, you know, in terms of, you know, that's more than the US, I think, per capita, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think the one reason why the government obviously is um has sort of still has reasonably high popularity ratings is because obviously the prime minister's own personal predicament and story yeah uh was one that gives him you know great sort of standing in terms of talking about the health services and the response there's a natural sympathy for him um, because of this, um, but I think there's also a recognition that um, that it hasn't the response has not gone well. Now they are beginning to get back up to speed. They had this litmus test of a hundred thousand tests per day, right? That uh, Matt Hancock had set out there that no one thought they would meet, and they didn't meet that last week. This um, is the health minister, I take it. It's yeah, yeah, Matt right Hank. at the end, they yeah. met the, the, that threshold. Mm-hmm. So there are sort of things happening there, um, but they have this huge decision about reopening. Um, you know, they haven't really managed to uh, to fundamentally sort of flatten the curve, although um, it's widely regarded that the peak has passed. Mm-hmm. Um, the first peak, and there may be others, obviously has um, is a little behind them now. But 
but the but the you know the focus on this R number about the rate of infection, all of that is is pretty vague and still higher than they would like it. So um, there's you know there there will be investigations I think when all of this is over, um, and and various inquiries, um, but for the moment, um, I think it hasn't you know politically. Um, it hasn't really affected the government just because no one wants to play politics with this in the middle of the crisis, right? It's right. They just want to lend as much support as possible. Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, new leader of the Labour Party, has been, I think, quite sure-footed, but also relatively, um, you know, relatively easygoing on the prime minister and the government um, for the moment, you know, and being fairly supportive. So... The politics of it, I think, are are um, muted. <laughs> will change. Will change once yeah. once the danger um, is out of the way. But they have, you know, it, it has obviously been noticed the huge difference between how Germany is handling this and how the UK is handling this. Mm-hmm. Um, and even ministers now are saying they need to take more lessons from the German approach. Oh, that's interesting. I, I take it also, though, that the, the regions have chafed a bit as well when it came to the government uh, maintaining the number, uh, identifying the numbers and so forth, meaning, you know, Scotland and Wales. And I don't know what the position in Northern Ireland is, but uh, that there was uh, some political yeah, friction. I've been fairly, um, Sturgeon has been very good, actually, and she's pretty, she's been sort of setting the pace. And so she had one of the first detailed plans and reopening. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the UK also does certain things well, um, even when there are certain things they don't do well. So they haven't done testing particularly well until quite recently. But one thing they've done quite well, though, is on the data side. So yes. they have very um, pretty accurate, uh, timely data that's become available um, and are, on an ongoing basis. And other countries in Europe don't have as strong data. You know, so mm-hmm. the the failure has been sort of there in bright shining lights. You know, because of the because of the data that they have, and uh, so that that is an advantage ultimately to to have that level of information. Um, so I think we'll you know obviously we'll we'll see, but I think that the big you know challenge for Boris Johnson is really on this next question of the reopening and how to do that. And mm-hmm. you know, he did have this more Trumpian attitude initially, um, but I think the severity of the, of, of the crisis is such that they, um, you know, they know they can't really mess this up, right? Yes. <laughs> well, and let's turn to, you know, that, that long-lasting problem, which... Uh, we need to kind of identify, and that is, of course, uh, even through this pandemic, they've had these virtual sessions uh, to deal with the, okay, so what is the relationship going to be between uh, uh, the UK UK and uh, Europe? In other words, the consequences of Brexit, right? And uh, they've had at least three negotiating rounds, uh, apparently, They've made uh, very little headway. Uh, uh, the big deadline, I take it, is kind of the end of June when they have to make a decision about whether to extend or not extend, and that is subject to where they are in the negotiations. Of course, once again, 
uh, Boris has made uh, pretty clear that he's not prepared to uh, extend. So, uh, you know, what's the situation here? Um, I think you summed it up pretty well, actually. Um, but, I, I mean, you're right. The, the big decision they have to take is on extension. And right. they're playing it pretty tough at the moment and saying they've absolutely no intention of extending. And some people, Ian Duncan Smith, you know, an influential figure in the Tory party said, well, look, you know, since the economy is broken down anyway, maybe the dislocation won't be as great, you know, so you could have a no deal, um, you know, exit option at the end of the year. Um, they've called upon the EU to change their position. That's obviously pretty unlikely. Um, I think ultimately they will have to um, ask for an extension. I, I always thought they would ask for an extension, mm -hmm. or I always thought they would need to, well, before COVID, because the the possibility of getting a trade deal in a year is just very, very slim. Right. You know, now, with the, these restrictions in place, I think it's basically impossible. Um, I don't know if they will do it. I think at a certain point, obviously, they have to begin to lay the groundwork. But they have a perfect alibi here, which is, you know, a very reasonable excuse that the talks have been impaired by the virus. Right. I think what's surprising to people is that they're not actually availing of that. And uh, it may be that they just, you know, there are problems with an extension from their point of view um, in terms of the budget and being stuck in, you know, all of these obligations for longer. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I think those pale in comparison to the risks of not having a trade deal, especially when their economy is going to be so weakened. So um, as a result of the virus. Right. You know, so. Um, so, you know, maybe this maybe we won't know this right up until the last uh, moment. At the moment, they're saying they will refuse an extension, even if the EU asks for one. You know, they've no. Uh, like all the briefings are, they have no, they have no interest. Right. But I, I, I don't see how that lasts. I just don't see how that is a uh, um, sustainable position. And I, I, I presume you don't uh, accept the Duncan Smith view, which is well, we'll just walk off the cliff because things will be so bad anyhow. We're not going to get blamed. Well, of course not, because you know the longer this goes on, and the worse the economic hit is. Mm -hmm. the more you'll need a recovery option, you know, and trading, you know, uh, you know, and trading outlets, partners, all of that, you know. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so even if things are already, even if, you know, trade is already sort of declined, people already aren't traveling, you know, um, they will really want to do so next year, you know, right. when things begin to open up. Sure. So, I don't, I don't know, you know, yeah, I don't really understand that at all. And I think in Europe, you know, the mood is, you know, the mood is always pretty tough on Brexit, but I think it's changed. Uh, you know, we used to say last year that for Britain, this is the top priority, but for Europe, it wasn't the top priority. Um, that is definitely true now, like whether or not that was true before. Right. You know, they're all dealing with this huge crisis and they still have Brexit. You know, I mean, it's just not really, uh, you know, if they have to deal with the no deal Brexit, they'll just deal with that, I think, at this point and say, look, 
you know, if you want to shoot yourselves in the foot, yes. you know, we can't stop you. Right. We regret it. We can't stop you. So, um, so I, I think that the, you know, there, there is a, uh, before COVID, maybe, maybe the EU would, you know, I think even here it was unlikely, but that they would say, look, we, we can't let this go off a cliff. Right. Some partners would say you have to do this, but I think at the moment, um, they, they'll just let them go if they, if they don't ask for an extension. I mean, it's, you know, uh, the issues strike me as in some senses anomalous i mean clearly not anomalous is obviously the influence of the eu institutions on uh, an independent uh, post brexit uh, uk but the the fishing rights issue just strikes me i mean uh, as a, you know while an imp- important issue for certain local communities it, it seems very strange to be seen operating that at the kind of national level between the EU and 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 the UK. Well, yeah, I mean, the fishing thing is an interesting case. Um, and just for your listeners, I mean, this is sort of the, you know, the arrangement whereby when a country becomes in the EU, you know, they have to share their waters right. them, or with other fishermen from other countries. It's the one area, I think, where objectively you could say that fishermen lost out by being in the EU, right? And the one beneficiary of Brexit is the fishermen, right? They will, Britain has these very extensive waters. uh, They will get all of those back. Mm -hmm. They may Mm -hmm. have problems and capacity to be able to do all the fishing, right? But that's sort of probably a good problem to have. And uh, they will benefit considerably. Um, and it's also important waters to Europe. And so what's going to happen and what's already happening is that Europe is making concessions on the fisheries contingent on, you know, uh, British access to European markets and other areas. Mm -hmm. Um, It's always going to be tough because um, for the British government to give up the one sort of major benefit they're getting out of Brexit is just sort of psychologically hard, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think, will be seen as a betrayal um, by those constituencies. So it doesn't surprise me that it's it's a big issue, actually. I think it was always going to be quite significant. Um, and it's sort of hard to see, you know, maybe how it's resolved very much in the short term. It's maybe something that sort of takes a while to work through. Um, so, yeah, there's all of those. And then, you know, the trade deal has to be ratified by everyone, too. So... That's a problem as well, because all of these other member states, you know, will have their own sort of concerns. And and Britain has also been, you know, a bit difficult on some of the issues they've even already settled, like over Northern Ireland. Right, right. So I think this will, you know, my expectation, if I had to, if I had to place a a guess at this point, will be that um, at some point in June, something will happen that will create a window where they can explain why they're reversing course um but if they don't or they'll have some wriggle room for an extension but if they don't um then i think you know we're we're we'll be much closer to sort of a no deal mm-hmm. uh, a mm-hmm. no deal exit and let, let's sum up the situation uh by hitting that last actor and that's ireland how how how's ireland handled both uh, the um, uh, pandemic, but also this continuing 
if muted at the point at this point discussion around uh, the future trade or the future deal between uh, the UK and uh, and the EU. Yeah, um, so the, it's been an interesting, eventful year to date already in Ireland. Um, so there was an election right. in the early part of the year. Right. The government, Leo Varadkar's government, suffered a major defeat, lost a lot of seats. Uh, Sinn Féin basically was widely judged to have won the election. Um, for slightly technical reasons, they, they came one seat behind Fianna Fáil in the number of seats but they got more votes overall and they would have gotten more seats had they run enough candidates mm-hmm. in the sort of proportional representation system. Um, but in February, uh, basically, the you know, this more uh, Sinn Féin party had, had, had won this major win and uh, it was possible they could go into government and if not, um, it would be a sort of a coalition of, of the more centrist parties that would have been relatively weak and it was seen as sort of the, if there was going to be another election this year, Sinn Féin would win, a, would win a, a more decisive victory. Really? Then COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And uh, the old government has stayed on basically in a caretaker capacity. And they've done quite well. You know, Leo Varadkar, the Irish Taoiseach Prime Minister, is a medical doctor oh. by training. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually went back into medical service one day a week. Uh, he reactivated his medical license and went back to practicing on, you know, to, to, uh, to help um, during the crisis. Um, they've had a very strict shutdown that has enjoyed broad public support. Um, the health minister, who'd been quite unpopular before the election, is sort of just to have done quite a good job since. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they've handled it pretty well. Um, but, you know, they're struggling with the same things everyone is struggling with, which is how do you do the reopening, mm-hmm. um, you know, what the long-term economic impact will be, given sort of high unemployment and um, and maybe more debt, um, and then sort of the how do you deal with the European dimension um, and the various discussions that are taking place around the future of the Eurozone. So I think they've done fairly well. Um, there may be a new government formed in the next month or so, um, there's been some progress on that. Um, they're also, you know, Brexit um, is very much obviously in their field house. You know, this is the old government, so they're pretty used to the issue. There's been no sort of teething problems that you might expect from a transition of power from one to the other. Um, so I think they are just um, insisting that Britain abide by the agreement it made uh, last year um, and uh, in the trade talks they're not front and central you know because um, you know I think they're happy to take more of a back seat mm-hmm. on those and leave it to the trade negotiators um, obviously the commissioner for trade is an Irishman though Phil Hogan right so there is a link um, there uh, just to, to, to finish up on that so what's the positioning of, of Sinn Féin? I mean, I take it this is quite a revelation to have Sinn Féin as a major player in the Republican, uh, uh, the Republic's elections. Yeah, I mean, they, um, so they ran a campaign that was focused very much on kitchen table issues, mm-hmm. you know, on, um, on how the cost of housing, on health care. Um, they didn't, you know, they're a nationalist party, obviously, and, and were, uh, you know, during the trouble, sort of the political arm of the IRA and 
Jerry Adams obviously is a very sort of divisive figure mm-hmm. um, in um, in Irish politics, so has been um, historically. And um, but what's interesting is they didn't really run on that. Like they didn't run on sort of a populist nationalist platform. They ran very much on a practical, uh, you know, uh, sort of fairly left uh, wing, but um, but more, you know, we want public housing options. Um, you know, you need to, uh, you know, a- address the housing issue, the healthcare uh, costs, all of these things, hmm. and and they won, and they 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 won a lot of a lot of support um, on that basis. But since then, the whole situation has changed, right? Because of the COVID crisis. Now, they, I think, there's pretty much a national consensus on how to handle it. Their leader, Mary Lou McDonnell, also tested positive. Oh. Uh, wasn't as sick as as Boris Johnson um, mm-hmm. recovered, um, but she was affected by it um, directly. I think long term it does change the political dynamic because um, you know the real question is how does the economy survive this crisis? You know, and the issues now are far uh, broader than just housing and health. You know, it gets to very existential questions about the economy and growth. Mm-hmm. So I think if there is another election or even just the political debate over the next few years, um, it will be different. And I don't know how they will handle that. Um, I mean, they I'm sure they you know, they will probably be the official opposition. Really? This government Mm -hmm. is formed. Mm -hmm. uh, They'll have plenty of opportunity um, to engage. But I think just as in any country, the whole political situation has changed. And Alan, just to bring you back to the broader Mm -hmm. question we were talking about at the beginning you know, there is a, a very real question here about, you know, what the long-term political consequences will be in democracies. You know, will it, um, you know, will it lead to sort of a, um, you know, the centrist sort of technocrats will do quite well, um, you know, or will it be more sort of populist parties who do quite well um, in those countries? Um, Ireland doesn't really have this, but in those countries that have more of the sort of right-wing populist movements mm-hmm. like Marine Le Pen in yeah, France, yeah. like will Le Pen uh, be advantaged from this uh, in the next French presidential election? Um, you know, these are all sort of really big questions that I think you could you could sort of tell the story either way at the moment. Right. right? Um, but we just don't know how it's going to play out. Okay. Well, that, that's a very interesting way to kind of uh, end this, uh, Tom, because clearly... It's that puzzle as to which way politics will go as we as we move all these countries move out of the move out of um, uh, the lockdowns. So uh, there's much to contemplate as we move forward. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tom. It, this has been a great pleasure, and I really appreciate uh, your taking the time to join us to talk about the pandemic and its consequences in the UK and in uh, and in Ireland. Thanks, Alan, and stay safe and look forward to talking with you again soon. You've been listening to the Global Cemetery Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com. <laughs>